0: This morning, God's Word comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3. We're going to begin our reading at verse 13 and then read just through verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, what we hear now is God's Word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy... Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. This morning we are beginning a new sermon series on the Word of God as it is summarized in the Belgic Confession. Incidentally, tonight we are also beginning a new sermon series. Uh, I don't know, that's that's happened before. Two new series on the same Lord's Day. Tonight, beginning a study of the book of Philippians. So you're welcome back to come tonight and begin that series as well. This morning, a new series on the Word of God as it's found in the Belgic Confession. And doctrinal preaching uh, is certainly nothing new to our congregation. Uh, We spent the last number of weeks and months looking at the doctrine of salvation Uh, It's our regular practice to preach the Word of God as it's summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, and you've heard that a number of times, a confession you probably are fairly familiar with. Uh, The Belgic Confession, uh, probably not quite as well known as the Heidelberg Catechism or perhaps even the Canons of Dort. In fact, I would not be surprised if there are some of you here today who have never read the Belgic Confession. But it is a wonderful summary of the truths of Scripture. It is a wonderful summary of the biblical faith. The Belgic Confession is one of the doctrinal standards of our church. Uh, We confess the Word of God as the final authority in all things, but we have three doctrinal standards that are in compliance with the Word of God. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, which we have studied, the Canons of Dort, which we have studied, and now the Belgic Confession. It is a summary of the Christian faith. And in fact, on the first editions of the Confession, on the title page, there was a text that was cited. And that text is the text we read this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. As I've said, confessional preaching, doctrinal preaching, has a long history in Reformed churches. Uh, In fact, it's still um, one of the requirements. If you want to be a united Reformed church, you are required, uh, at least once a Lord's Day, to preach the truths of Scripture as they're found in the confessions. I like how our our church order puts that, however. We are to preach the Word of God as it's summarized in the confessions. As wonderful, as helpful, as useful as the confessions may be, they are secondary standards. The Word of God is our primary standard. The Word of God is that only rule for life and faith. And so every Lord's Day, as we study the confession, we will look at a text of Scripture to highlight the truth that is in the Belgic Confession. Verse 15 says, always be prepared to make a defense. Always be prepared. And I would suggest there are at least least two circumstances in which we need to be prepared to make a defense of the faith. The first of those is in times of persecution. And certainly that was the context Peter was writing into, a time of persecution. Back in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, to those Christians who were dispersed throughout these various areas. They were dispersed throughout the land. And he says in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. It was a time of difficulty, a time of persecution. Peter references that in our chapter, verse uh, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Suffering for the sake of righteousness, written into a time of persecution, That was the same context into which the Belgic Confession was written. It was a time of persecution for the church, a time when the church uh, could not meet openly and freely, but was being persecuted by the government. The author of the confession, a man named Guido de Bray, lived a very difficult life often running from one place to another to to try to escape the persecution of the law. In fact, after writing the confession, he was exiled for five years from his country. He was finally martyred at the young age of 47. He was hanged, placed in a shallow grave, and the animals came and consumed his body. Not an easy life. But he wrote this defense of the faith. A defense for which he and the Christian church was willing to die. In the introduction to the confession, this is what is written. We would offer our backs to the stripes, our tongues to knives, and our mouths to gags, and our bodies to the fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. So deeply they held these truths as a faithful uh, summary of what the Scripture teaches, willing to die for the sake of the truth. It's important to uh, always be prepared to make a defense in times of persecution. Now, I don't expect, I don't expect many of us in the upcoming week will have that challenge given to us, to have our our backs to stripes, our tongues to knives. It It is not an overt time of persecution in the church. But there's a second instance in which it's good to be able to make a defense, and that is not persecution in the church, but a perversion of the gospel. And that is certainly the time in which we live. The introduction of new ideas or perhaps perhaps a changing of old ideas, old truths that we were always sure about, they were, they were solid, they were biblical, they were scriptural, are now being challenged. We think of something as fundamental, as the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We now have voices telling us that justification isn't what we always thought it was. Now we studied justification a few weeks ago as a forensic, declaratory act of God by which we are not guilty, by which Christ's righteousness is credited to us. And there are those that say no, No, those texts that we thought were so clear on justification just aren't that clear anymore. Justification no longer a forensic declarative act. Uh, The Bible's just not clear on what justification is. And make no mistake, if you hear again and again that the Bible is not clear on something, either consciously or subconsciously, you will start to believe it. Kids, if I got up every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening and told you, well, this is what I think the text says, but the Bible's just not clear, and every Sunday you heard the Bible's just not clear, you will believe the Bible is just not clear. We have voices perverting the truth of the gospel. Voices trying to change what the word of God, the clear word of God, teaches to us. The confession, the confession is a faithful summary of Scripture. It reminds us we must always go back to Scripture. And, and, and even, even in the confession itself, it is a, a summary of biblical truth. In the confession itself, in Article 7, describing the sufficiency of the Word of God, it says this, Therefore we must consider human writings, that's what the confession is, human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, we shall not consider them equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor passage of time, or persons, or councils, or decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. Even the Belgic Confession author himself recognized his confession was subservient to the Word of God. It, 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 it points us back into. God's word. And that's really the nature and the character of what the Reformation was about. The Reformation was not about doing something new. The Reformation was about a return to the basic fundamental truths of the word of God. Perhaps perhaps you have heard the uh, phrase used, uh, the reformed church is always reforming. Well, first of all, that that particular quote doesn't seem to come from the time of the Reformation. No one can actually find where that quote comes from. And it's often used, that quote is used, the Reformed Church is always reforming. It's often used as a proof text for doing something new. We want to do something new because the Reformed Church is always reforming. But the Reformation was not about doing something new, it was about a return about a return to the Word of God. So yes, the Reformed Church always must be reforming, meaning we must always go back to God's Word as our final standard. In times of persecution, in times of perversion of the Gospel, we go back to the Word of God, and the, and the confession drives us there and gives us a wonderful summary of what, what God's Word teaches us. Our text says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. We're to be prepared to make a defense to all people. And again, I would suggest at least three different ways or three different groups of people with which the confession can do that. First of all, the confession serves as an apology to the unbeliever. It's an apology to the unbeliever. Now, kids, when I say the word apology, it's not like when you maybe fight with your brother and sister and mom says you have to go make an apology to your sister. That's not the kind of apology we're talking about. When we use the word apology in terms of our theology, apology means a reasoned explanation. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses here. Always be ready to make an apology. Make an apology for the hope that is in you. A reasoned explanation. And the confession helps us in that. It gives us a systematized approach to the truth of the word of God, that truth which we hold so dear. It helps us to make that reasoned explanation, that that reasoned defense. Some have suggested that that our creeds, our confessions, are a hindrance in evangelism. When actually the opposite is true. The creeds and confessions help to give the big picture of what our churches believe. We can certainly take people to the Word of God, but if they want to have a systematized approach to the doctrines of the church, we bring them to the confessions because they faithfully reflect the Word of God. The creeds, the confessions remind us that faith and intellect go together. It is not as if when you come in the church, we ask you to check your brains at the door and simply, simply accept whatever is said. No, our, our, our faith is a reasoned faith. I've used the phrase before, it's an intellectually satisfying faith. Because it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful faith that arises out of God's truth. We don't check our brain to the door. Faith and intellect go wonderfully together. So this morning, once again, if, if you are here and have not, have not embraced Jesus Christ, I'm not telling you, turn your brain off and do so. But rather, hear the word of God. And hear the call to faith and repentance. And put your faith, a mindful faith, in Jesus Christ. Because of what He has done, what He has accomplished. Not because He gives you a warm feeling in your heart. Put your faith in Him with heart and soul and mind and strength. The confession helps us to give an apology to the unbeliever, a systematized set of doctrines that they can look at. Secondly, the confession is a teacher for our children. The confession is useful for instruction at home. Now certainly the Heidelberg Catechism is useful for that as well, but the Belgic Confession is useful for our instruction at home. And I I would urge you, I would encourage you as parents with young children to to take full advantage of this sermon series. To take full advantage, we're going to go through about an article every week, a couple exceptions to that, so you'll know what's coming. And I encourage you to read through that article with your children as you have devotions for them and and even make a game out of it. Say, now, now this is what the confession says, what text do you think Reverend Niemeyer is going to pick to preach on this particular article of the Confession? Uh, Or maybe say the question this way, what text would you pick to preach this article of the Confession? Because the the Confession has very understandable language. Now if you've read the Canons of Dort, that language is a bit uh, above most of our heads. But the Confession is very, very understandable. I think of the language used in Article 2 when it describes the two ways that we know God. uh, We know Him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of god the universe is like a beautiful book and all of god's creatures like the letters and the words in that book to make us think about god that's very accessible it's it's childlike language not childish language childlike language our children can understand that so the confession is used to make an apology to the unbeliever. It's used as a teacher for our children, and it's used as a defender of the faith to other believers. Why does your church believe the way you do? You know that we are a confessional church. Uh, Not simply a Bible church. I've said before, every church worth the title church says they believe the Bible. But what do you believe about the Bible? And when you begin to answer that question, you're dealing in the realm of confessions. Now, some churches will claim that they have no confession. They simply believe in Jesus Christ. And you ask them, well, what do you believe about Christ? And as soon as they start talking, they are making a confessional statement. Unless they absolutely quote the words of Scripture. All churches, in a sense, are confessional. We're just explicit. (laughs) This is our confession. This is the truth that we believe. And that can be helpful when dealing with other believers. And we're talking about some of the the particularities of what our church believes. I think of of the doctrine of election. God's electing love. If we wanted to to demonstrate that to other believers, we could certainly take them to Ephesians chapter 1. If we wanted a more theological approach to election, we could take them to Article 16 of the Belgic Confession. We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he in his eternal and unchangeable counsel has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord, he is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall into which they have plunged themselves. Election is a matter of God's mercy and God's justice. And the confession helps to flesh that out for us. So it's a useful tool, it's a helpful tool. It's an apology to the unbeliever, it's a teacher to our children, it's a defender of the faith to other Christian believers. And when we we gather around this common understanding of the word of God, it lends itself to true unity in the church. There certainly continues to be today a move toward ecumenism to try to get all churches together. And there are really two different responses to this ecumenical movement. One is an isolationist uh, position where we say we're just going to kind of avoid and not talk about anybody else out there. We know what we believe and we're going to close the doors and build the walls and not be involved with anyone. Or... The opposite position is that we're going to try to find what I would call the lowest common denominator. What is the most basic, fundamental statement we can agree on? That there is a God. Okay, let's be churches together. That Jesus once exists. Not that he's a savior, but that he existed. Okay, let's be churches together. No, the confession helps us to find biblical unity in the truth. There are certain matters on which we may disagree, and that's fine, but there are fundamental things on which we must agree to belong to the church, a reformed church. And so so we, 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 we look for these fundamental basic truths explained for us in the confession. As a federation of churches, we have a synod. That's our broadest assembly that will meet in about two weeks. And one of the things we will do at the beginning of that assembly is all the delegates will stand to affirm their belief that the Reformed confessions are a faithful understanding of the Word of God. We confess that together. These are true to God's Word. We we have these fundamental statements with other like-minded people churches outside of our federation. We believe the same truth, the same doctrine, the same understanding of Scripture. And so if in God's providence you should find yourself moving away from our church to a new area, the first church you're going to look for is one that will affirm the truth of the confessions, that will affirm these same fundamental doctrines Because that is where true biblical unity comes from, unity in the truth, the basic fundamental truth of the Word of God. As Reformed churches, we have a wonderful biblical heritage. It's a heritage that has been codified in the confessions of the church. They are a helpful tool that we might be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in us. Now, the confessions are not hard to find. I would encourage you to read them throughout the week. They are in the back of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. They are in the back of the old blue Psalter Hymnal. If you prefer to go online, you can find them on our church's website, a link to them. You can find them on the URCNA website or just Google, Belgic Confession, it'll pop up. They're easily accessible, and a wonderful tool to help us in our walk with the Lord. We begin this morning a series of sermons that will take us a number of months to complete. And at the end, I, I hope that you don't simply say, I know more about the Belgic Confession. But I hope that you can say, I am now more well prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in us. May God bless the preaching of his word toward that end. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we are so thankful for your faithfulness in your church, a church that has existed from the beginning of time a church that you have always watched over and always protected. In times of the Reformation, O God, you kept hold of your church. And you you allowed certain men to arise who would write uh, human documents, but human documents that pointed to and were faithful to uh, your holy word. Lord God, may we not um, ignore our own history. May we recognize we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. You've given us a wonderful heritage. And may we use these wonderful tools to drive us back into your word. to the truth you have given to us there. That we might declare to all around us a reasoned defense for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer, O God. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We turn to number 416 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal. 416, your hand, O God, has guarded, guided your flock from age to age. Your faithfulness is written on history's open page. We're going to sing all three verses, 416. Let's stand together as we sing. Receive The parting blessing of our God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.